I guess you could tell from the intro video that uh, dark days are ahead for Israel. And we're, we're working through the story. If this is your first time to join us, uh, we're, working through, we're reading through the whole Bible right now. And we've got two weeks left in the Old Testament. We're going to take a little one-week break to catch our breath, and then we're going to pick up the New Testament. So if you're joining us for the first time, maybe online or maybe in the room, uh, if you want to, just wait a couple weeks and you can join us for the New Testament portion of this journey. But uh, we've, been, we've been reading through the story of Israel and as you read through it, one of the things that I keep thinking is, especially as we move into Kings, because Kings is where things really get bad. But one of the things I keep thinking is, you know, it can't get any worse. Like, it just can't get any worse for the people. Because ever since they got out of Egypt, like ever since the Exodus, things have gone from bad to worse for the Israelites. Because as soon as they get out of slavery, they are fussing and complaining uh, they want to go back to Egypt. They want to go back under the hand of Pharaoh. They are bowing down to false idols. They are bowing down to false gods. They are not obeying the decrees of God, not obeying the commandments of God. Uh, they sin. They do evil. They practice the same thing that the nations before them did. And, and you like the whole story is kind of about how bad Israel is and how patient and good and loving God is because he just keeps delivering, he keeps rescuing, he keeps redeeming. But you read Israel's story like, through the wilderness wanderings, things got bad. Through the cycle of judges, things got bad. And in the time of kings, things really get bad. And you keep going like, it just, <laughs> it can't get any worse, right? I mean, this has got to be rock bottom right here. Like, it, it just can't get any worse than this. I mean, Jeroboam, or Rehoboam first, that was the king of the southern kingdom. He uh, is so arrogant that he won't lighten the load on the Israelites. And so the kingdom splits in two. And it falls into civil war. And then Jeroboam, who was given the northern kingdom, is so arrogant, so selfish, so, so sinful, whatever it is. He builds two golden calves and says, I want you to bow down to these golden calves as if they were the God that led you out of Egypt. And you read about Jeroboam's sin and go, it just can't get any worse. Like it's, this is, they've, they've hit rock bottom right here. They're back worshiping golden calves again. Like this just, it's, it's terrible. It's not going to get any worse until... It does, right? It gets worse. Uh, Israel, the northern kingdom, has 18 kings that follow Jeroboam, and not a single one of them is good. Like, they, they're 0 for 19 in the king department. They, they completely winless. In the king. There's not a single good king of Israel. Every one of them did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the worst one was the last one. This is in 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 17. If you've got a Bible with you, or if you've got one and you're at home, look up 2 Kings chapter 17 because we're going to spend a little bit of time in this chapter. It's a pivotal chapter that kind of tells the story of how Israel and Judah ended up in captivity. So 2 Kings chapter 17 verse 2, this is about King Hosea, who's the last king of Israel. It says, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not like the kings of Israel who preceded him. In other words, he was worse. He was so bad that during King Hosea's reign, God decided, I'm done with the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. And he allowed the Assyrians to come and conquer, capture, and march into exile the entire kingdom of Israel because of King Hosea's sin and all the sin of the king's before him. And what follows in chapter 17, the reason I say it's pivotal is because it, it kind of gives a summary of how Israel got in this situation. 
And it says, starting in verse uh, 7, it says, All this took place, talking about the captivity, the Assyrians defeating Israel and taking over the promised land. They lose the promised land. God had promised them this land, and now they're losing it. And it says, All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who brought them up out of Egypt under the power of the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And they worshipped other gods, and they followed the practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. So Israel does things that are not right. They do wicked things, and they arouse the Lord's anger. And, and he had warned them, and he'd warned the people of Israel, do not follow after the practices of these other nations. Do not follow after the practices of these other gods. But they would not listen. Verse 14, they were as stiff-necked as their ancestors who did not trust in the Lord their God. This is like this indictment of Israel that the, the author of 2 Kings is giving. They rejected the decrees and the covenant he had made with their ancestors and the statutes he had warned them to keep. They followed worthless idols and they themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord thy God. They made for themselves two idols, cast in the shape of calves and an asherah pole. They bowed down to all the starry hosts. They worshipped Baal, who's a false god. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. Now stop right there just a minute. Do you remember why Israel why Israel conquered the Canaanites, one of the things that God wanted to do with the Canaanites was to punish them for their evil, and particularly it was the practice of child sacrifice. And now Israel has fallen itself into the practice of child sacrifice. They practiced divination, they sought omens, they sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel, and he removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left. So the northern kingdom, God sends the northern kingdom into exile. And um, Judah is the only part of Israel that's still intact in the southern kingdom. And Jerusalem's in the southern kingdom as well. But the very next verse kind of foretells that Judah is not much better. Verse 19. Even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices that Israel had introduced. So Judah does a little bit better in the king department. Israel's 0 for 19. Judah went 8 for 20. So they still have a losing record, but they had eight good kings in the kingdom of Judah. And one of them follows immediately here. Like you got King Hosea, and we lose the northern kingdom. King Hezekiah is the king of the southern kingdom at that time, and he's a good king. And he follows the decrees of God, and he trusts in God. And because of that, the Assyrians don't capture, capture Judah because King Hezekiah is a good king. But after Hezekiah, you got a king by the name of Manasseh. And this is of chapter 21, so skip ahead a few chapters to chapter 21. It says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was not important. Um, and he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Follow, I didn't learn how to pronounce that one. Uh, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Are you starting to get that that's important? Like you keep reading, God, the writer keeps referencing like they followed the detestable practices of the nations before them. They followed the, in other words, they were following other gods. They weren't bowing down to their God anymore or trusting in their God or being faithful to their God. They're following other gods. And Manasseh is a terrible, terrible king. Uh, chapter 21 
gives all the, the sins of Manasseh. And I won't read them because they're exactly the same as the sins of Israel. But he worships false gods, Ashrapos, Baal. He sacrifices his own son in the fire to a false god. So Manasseh is this terrible, terrible king. And because of Manasseh, God issues a judgment against Jerusalem and Judah. And this is in uh, verse 12 and 15 of chapter 21. It says, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I'm going to bring such disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria. Samaria is the capital of Israel. So he's saying, you remember how Israel fell? Same thing's going to happen to Jerusalem. The plumb line used against the house of Ahab. And I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and give them into the hands of their enemies. Then they'll be looted and plundered by the enemies. They have done evil in the eyes, in my eyes, and they have aroused my anger from this day to the day their ancestors came out of Egypt. And so he prophesies that Jerusalem is going to fall. And this is like, like you read these passages and it's like, whew, man, God is upset with Israel. And you understand why he's upset with Israel. And you understand why he's upset uh, with Judah, but it's still hard to read those and, and hear how God says, I'm, I'm going to drive you out of my presence, and I'm going to allow the Babylonians to come in and conquer you, which is exactly what's going to happen. There's some good kings that follow Manasseh, but generations after Manasseh, they just can't overcome his sin. His sin is so great that God allows a king by the king of King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians to come in, conquer Jerusalem, destroy the temple, take away all the sacred items of the temple into Babylonian captivity, take away all the people of Judah into Babylonian captivity. So that by the end of 2 Kings, the northern kingdom is in exile and no longer in the promised land, and the southern kingdom is in exile and no longer in the promised land. And it's like, man, this story just keeps going from bad to worse. But God is faithful and God keeps his promises. And even though Israel keeps sinning and Judah keeps sinning and they keep forsaking God and they're not trustful and they don't trust God and they're not faithful, God continues to prove his faithfulness to them even in exile. And this is why we have the prophets. So everything I just described to you and everything we just looked at, this exile, is why the prophets rose up. The reason we have Isaiah, the reason we have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Elisha, Elijah, all of these prophets came up to prophesy against Israel, to render judgments to them, to say, if you keep going down this path, you're going. If you keep following other gods, if you keep worshiping false idols, if you keep doing this, you are going to lose your inheritance. And so they, they warn them, they judge them, they call them to repentance. And the last 17 books of the Old Testament are all prophecy. There's 17 books. So this is a pretty significant part of the Old Testament. And you're not going to read a whole lot of them in the story because the story follows the narrative. But there's, there's major prophets and there's minor prophets. So the, the minor prophets just means that they wrote a shorter book. Not because they're less important, but they just wrote a shorter book than the major prophets. And uh, you got Hosea and Amos and... Zechariah and Daniel, and there's all, all of these prophets that are called to urge Israel to repent, but they are also called to give Israel a message of hope even as they go into exile. So some of my favorite verses and some of your favorite verses, some of the ones we quote often, are from the prophets because the prophets not only judge Israel, 
but they also provide a measure of hope because God wants to remind that he is going to be faithful to his promises. So verses like, you know, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. And I love that verse. Every morning when you wake up, it's a, it's a fresh slate. It's a, the, 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 the slate's been wiped clean when you wake up because his mercies are new every morning. That's from the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah issued some harsh judgments against Israel, but he also reminded them of hope. Every, you know, a couple months, we're going to be quoting a, a passage from Isaiah, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Mighty Counselor, Everlasting Father, Wonderful God, Prince of Peace. You know, we're going to quote that verse. That's from the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah issues some stern judgments against Israel, but he also gives them hope, and he says, there's a king coming. There is a messianic king coming who will deliver you out of captivity and out of exile. You see how Israel ended up, as you follow the story of the Old Testament, they end up right where they finished, right where they begin. They begin the story in exile in Egypt for generations enslaved at the hand of Pharaoh. And at the end of the Old Testament, they end it in exile, enslaved by the Babylonians because of their own sin. But God still promises to deliver. God continues to offer them hope because what the prophets are trying to say is that God is good, God is faithful, God is trustworthy, he is slow to anger, he is abounding in love. Yes, you've aroused his anger, but he will deliver you even in the, and he will go with you even in the midst of exile. Now, time out real quick, and let me talk about something that I, I wanted to talk about for the last three weeks. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to set the story of Israel aside for just a minute and go over here and let's have a little commercial break um, about America. All right, and now you're going to go, now what in, what in the world is this about? You know, I don't, I don't know what in the world you're talking about. Okay, hang on. You're going to be very tempted as you read this week and you read about what happened in Kings and you read about what the prophets. You're going to be very tempted to take Israel and put America in the place of Israel. And the reason we're going to be tempted to do that is because we're Americans. And as Americans, we've been taught from the very beginning of our country that we are a special country, that we are a called out people, that we are a chosen nation, that, you know, we are, uh, some people refer to America as the new Israel. You know, we've been taught manifest destiny. God has this manifest destiny for the people of America. And so we take verses out of the Old Testament, and we like to apply those to America. For example, we, Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. That's a beautiful verse. It's a promise to Israel, not America. Uh, Chronicles, you know, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and uh, pray and turn from their sin, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and I will heal their nation. Beautiful verse. That's a promise to the nation of Israel, not the nation of America. And I, I'm just, I'm trying to, this is my, just a disclaimer here, okay? The disclaimer is 
that when you read the Old Covenant and we read about the Old Testament, there's a couple of things that are true about the Old Covenant. One is that it was a conditional covenant, and you're reading about how the conditional covenant worked. The conditional covenant was, Israel, here's the promises made to you at Mount Sinai. If you keep these commands, God will bless you. If you fail to keep these commands, God will punish you. So it is a conditional covenant. Number two, it was a specific covenant. It was given specifically to the nation of Israel. And number three, it was a temporary covenant. It would eventually be fulfilled and replaced by the new covenant. This is where we get the terms Old Testament and New Testament. Testament means covenant. So this is kind of where we get those ideas. So as Americans, I'm going to caution you as you read through the Old Covenant, be very careful about taking things in the Old Covenant and take, striking Israel and putting America in the place because we are people of a new covenant. We have a new covenant built upon better promises and by we I don't mean the nation of America by we I mean the people of God in whatever nation we live in the people of God in any and every nation are now part of this new covenant not just America America's not a chosen nation America's not the new Israel America's not uh, got special status with God above all the other nations so, so be very careful when you read through the prophecies and the punishments upon the kings and all that to say, well, that's what's happening to America right now. You know, America's being punished for her sin and America's this and America's that. You know, just be really, really careful about that because the, the commands of the Old Testament are not our commands because their covenant is not our covenant. We are under a new covenant. Now, I, I cover all of that uh, in a couple of messages that if you want to go back and listen to them, I did it right after Easter. And so if you want to go back and listen to those messages, the, the best one is probably the Bible according to Jesus. I don't say the best one because that was the best one in the series. I just say it covers kind of this principle right here without getting into it. So, um, and you can go back and listen to that if you want to, if you want to listen to that. But I just, I just want to be, be really careful about transposing the commands and prophecies specific to the nation of Israel, transposing those upon America because I think that's bad theology. Back to the story. Okay, uh, so <clears throat> here's what happens. Israel goes, uh, Judah, and I, I use Israel for Judah as well. Israel goes into um, exile. They go into captivity. And right at the beginning of exile, something happens. And it's recorded in the story of Daniel. There's two things that happen in the story of Daniel. But it's right at the beginning of exile. King Nebuchadnezzar, as he marches the Israelites out of Judah, says, I want uh, you to find some members of the royal family to serve in my court. And he chooses four men from the royal family. Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah. And you're probably familiar with Daniel. You don't know the other guys because you know them by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, along with Daniel, serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. There's, there's, they still serve their God, but they serve in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, kind of like Jeroboam, kind of like Hosea, kind of like Manasseh, gets this idea that he wants to build a golden statue. And he builds a statue that is 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And he commands everyone in his kingdom, which now includes the people of Judah and the people of Israel, he commands everyone in his kingdom that whenever I play the trumpets, whenever I play the music, I want you to bow down to the statue. Everybody will bow down. When you hear the music, bow down. Well, Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego 
refuse to do this because they serve Yahweh. They serve the Lord their God. And the Lord their God has told them, do not bow down to false idols and do not worship false gods. So they refuse the king's order. They stand in defiance of the king. When the king hears about it, he's furious. And so Nebuchadnezzar calls them before him and he's like, maybe you guys weren't listening. Maybe you didn't hear me. Let me explain what I said. What I said was, whenever the music plays, you guys are going to bow down to this golden statue. And this is what they said to him. And these are some powerful verses right here. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Now they're talking to the most powerful man in the world. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. So you see faith. Hosea didn't have faith. Manasseh didn't have faith. All these kings, compare what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, compare them to all the kings of Israel and Judah that we've read about. He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, <laughs> that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. So King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude towards them changed because he liked them before. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And he, he had these men, he, his men, he ordered the furnace heated so hot that when his men threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace, they burned up because it was, this furnace was so hot. And as Nebuchadnezzar is looking in the furnace, he sees three men standing. But there is a fourth image in the furnace. There is another in the fire. And this is what it says right here, verse 24. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement. And he asked his advisors, weren't there three men when we tied up and threw them in the fire? Wasn't there three men that we put in there? They replied, certainly, your majesty. And he said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. I want you to... Put yourself, I want you to think, what, what is going on here? Like, why does Daniel include this story? And why is this story included at the very beginning of exile? What is God trying to say to his people? He's trying to say to his people that the word I spoke to Abraham is the word I keep with, for you. And the word I spoke to Moses is the word I keep to you. And the word I spoke to David is the word I keep to you. What did he say to Abraham? I will not leave you. And what did he say to Moses? I will not leave you. I will go with you. To David, I will go with you. Eventually to all people throughout all history, God says, I will go with you. Never will I leave or forsake you. You are not alone. Even in exile, God is still faithful. Even in exile, God is still going to deliver upon his promises. God is still the deliverer. He's still the rescuer. He's still the redeemer. So even in the darkest days of Israel and Judah, God communicates with them, I am still with you. Even in the hottest of fires, I am still with you. Even when you, I mean, because of your sin, you have ended up in a terrible place. You've lost it all. I mean, you've lost your home. You've lost everything. But even in those circumstances, I am still with you. It's a message of hope 
right in the midst of this really dark time, there's this message of hope. And it, like when they sang the song, Another in the Fire, like when I, when I saw that song, cause Scott sent it to me a week ago. And I, he said, hey, here's a song we're doing Sunday. See what you think. And I read it and I thought two things. A, like, wow, it's like Scott like, knew what I was gonna preach this Sunday. Like, it's like we've been planning this stuff out. And that, so that was, and I was so thankful that Scott and Tiffany are spending so much time thinking through what, what is our worship and who is it to and what are we talking about and how does it talk and play into what we're talking about as a church. And I'm thankful that they're doing that and spending so much time on that. But the second thing I thought was, wow, there is such deep imagery and symbolism in that song. And, and, it's, and it's based upon knowing your Old Testament. Like if you don't know your Old Testament, that song doesn't carry near the weight. Because if you know the Old Testament, you know the stories, then you know exactly what that song is trying to say to us. And it's trying to communicate to us this same thing. Because remember, the God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. God has not changed. And sadly, when you read the stories of the Old Testament, we haven't changed much either. Because we read about their sin and think how awful they are, but goodness, if somebody read about our sin, think how awful we are. If our sins were recorded in a book for people to read throughout history. <laughs> but, the, but God promises Israel the same thing. He promises us here. He promises that I will never leave or forsake you. That's a principle that goes throughout all of the Bible because that's exactly what Jesus told his disciples before he ascended in heaven I'll, I'll, I'll never leave you I go with you always I'll be with you always even until the very end of the age so we're going to close with this song we're actually going to do two things as we close with this song we're going to combine communion with a closing song because one of the things we do in communion is we remember that God is still with us the death burial and the resurrection reminds us that Jesus is still with us and even in the darkest night, even in the fire, there's another who is with us, that stands with us, and that promises to deliver. So if you're in the room with us, we're gonna stand. So go ahead and stand up. We're gonna close with this song and sing this song. If you haven't got your communion yet, go to one of the tables and grab it and just bring it back to your seat. At some point during the singing of this song, I want us to take communion together. And remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And remember the truths that this song are about. If you're watching online, you can get your communion elements ready. I, I want to challenge you to do something online too. Would you stand? And I know it's awkward because you're by yourself or you're with two or three other people. And it's awkward. I get it. I've watched online before. But would you stand? And let's sing this song as a reminder of who God is and what he promises us. Let's sing this as a reminder that even though times are tough, there is another 